If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to talk about eye health. Uh, we've uh, invited uh, one of our uh, favorite guests, uh, our go-to expert on eye health, uh, Dr. Rudrani Bannock. Dr. Bannock is a board-certified ophthalmologist. Uh, she also has training, I believe, in neuro-ophthalmology. Uh, some of that training obtained at uh, Johns Hopkins University and uh, other prestigious places. And uh, what I really admire about Dr. Bannock is that uh, she is scrupulously trained academically. She is uh, a uh, mainstream practitioner of ophthalmology. Uh, she operates on patients, but at the same time, she's very open-minded to uh, integrative approaches. And uh, so uh, she is really uh, a great person to talk to about uh, both high-tech interventions and natural approaches to eye health. So without further ado, here's Dr. Bannock. Dr. Bannock, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hoffman. It is a pleasure to be back. I really enjoyed our conversation last time as well. Indeed. Well, you know, uh, a lot of water under the bridge since then. Uh, you know, we didn't know from uh, COVID-19 uh, the last time I spoke to you. And uh, you, like me, you're a physician in practice. Uh, how has uh, COVID-19 impacted your practice? Uh, did you close the office or did you just see emergencies or have you been doing a lot of telemedicine? How does an eye doctor accomplish all the things that an eye doctor needs to do uh, uh, remotely? Yeah, so um, so when you know the pandemic first hit, we as ophthalmologists were given a mandate basically to stop practicing. And uh, we're seeing patients face to face because we were at high risk being closed when mm -hmm. we had to, when we examine our patients. So it was recommended that we all close our practices. We uh, cease any kind of surgery, any kind of procedures. So for about three months or so, uh, my office was closed. And you know, also because I'm based in New York City where the, the numbers were very high and we took extra precautions. So I've been slowly opening up and, uh, you know, just kind of adjusting patient flow and only one person in the office at a time and being extremely sanitary with all of our equipment. And I, on the other hand, I have been doing quite a bit of telemedicine as well. So, um, you know, I've been managing to, to you know, still 
provide care, but more virtually. And um, surgeries, we just got to go, you know, the go ahead to start operating again as of last week. And we'll see how that, that pans out. But it will be a very slow start and a long time before we can fully get back to normal. What's uh, the range of surgeries that uh, you perform? Uh, are you just sort of like general uh, surgeon in in eye care? Do you deal with everything from trauma to glaucoma to uh, cataracts, or is there any particular thing you focus on? Yeah, so um, so I am trained as an ophthalmologist, which means that I have training in all of those different types of surgery. But uh, in terms of my focus um, currently, I really, uh, really focus on cataracts and certain types of laser, uh, as well as ocular surface issues. So I don't do glaucoma surgery. I don't do retina surgery. Um, but, and then I also do uh, some in-office procedures, uh, including therapeutic Botox. So I have quite a few patients who have facial spasms and other types of uh Issues. Uh, so the Botox, not for not merely for cosmetic uh, purposes, but people have a blepharospasm and you know the things where the Botox relaxes the eye muscles, or or maybe uh, you know I don't know what the precise term is, but they're they're cross-eyed. You know they, they need to have uh, their eyes straightened out with Botox. Exactly. Yeah. So the therapeutic indications for Botox, and it's very interesting you brought that up because crossed eyes or strabismus in medical terms was the first FDA-approved indication for Botox. Hmm. And so we used it before for wrinkles. Red eyes, well before wrinkles. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so as a side effect of using it for ocular uh, conditions, people realized, oh, it actually decreases the appearance of these fine lines and creases. So that's how the you know the birth of cosmetic Botox came about. But uh, ophthalmic indications were some of the first uh, medical FDA-approved indications. And as you mentioned, blepharospasm is one of the, uh, you know, very common conditions that does very well with Botox, also hemifacial spasm or just eyelid twitches. Mm-hmm. And then I also use it for migraine. Yes. Uh, so you, I you sort of, mi- like I have a bit of a, a minor in migraines, you know, you do, just, but you, you see a fair number of patients with migraines, particularly when there's eye involvement, ocular migraines. Yes, yes. So many people have visual symptoms with migraine, and so they end up going to the eye doctor first. So as a neuro-ophthalmologist, I do manage quite a few migraines with patients. I would say about actually 50% of my practice has some form of headache or migraine. And um, and so I use uh, natural therapies along with some of the, the traditional medical therapies for migraine. Yeah, well, what can, it, what can an eye doctor bring to the, the situation with migraines? Because traditionally that's the the bailiwick of, uh, of neurologists, and they use various, uh, you know, there's some new medications, there's some old medications, mostly it's about medication, right? Yes, yes. So uh, many patients come in with visual symptoms, so they may see flashing lights, for example, and oftentimes it's very, quite a frightening experience. Many people think they're having a stroke when yep. they start seeing these flashing lights, which right. we call aura. And so for for that, you know, for a first-timer who's developed migraine with aura, an ophthalmologist is key because we do something called the visual field test, and it tests uh, the patient's peripheral vision, and we just want to make sure that there's nothing neurologic going on. For example, you know, if there is some finding on the visual field test, we would definitely order further testing, such as an MRI or CAT scan, for example. So oftentimes, ophthalmologists are the first providers to see patients with migraine. Patients also may have light sensitivity with migraine, so we help to manage that. And some people have some other strange visual phenomenon as well, for example, transient loss of vision and or even double vision from migraine. So some of the more rare manifestations of migraine is, is falls under the purview of uh, ophthalmology, but more particularly neuro-ophthalmology. 
You, you seem to take a special interest in color blindness, and you know, and I didn't realize this, but after talking to you, I recognize that there's there are various shades and gradations of color blindness. It's not kind of not an all or nothing thing. Uh, are there any plausible uh, ways of overcoming that? Yeah, so uh, so there are two distinctions when it comes to color blindness. There's congenital color blindness, and then there's acquired color blindness. So congenital is actually very common in the population, particularly in males. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting fact: so about twelve percent of males in the U.S. have some degree of red-green color blindness. So mm-hmm. it's not that they can't see those colors completely, but there's some gradations that they are unable to mm-hmm. see. They make they may confuse certain shades. And um, it is also uh, seen in women, but much less common. I think it's been about uh, one in 200 women have uh, color blindness or red-green color deficiency. But the other type of color blindness, which is acquired color deficiency, is uh, it could be either red-green or blue-yellow. And these all have to do with the cones in the retina in the back of our eyes, which cones are affected and in what percentage. And so many people who have retinal issues will have color deficiency or optic nerve issues, for example. I deal with a lot of patients with optic nerve stroke or uh, optic neuritis, which can be seen with multiple sclerosis, uh, many of these patients have some degree of color deficiency as well. So there's a, a whole range of different causes of color issues, but the most common is color blindness. Could a cataract make it so that you discern colors less clearly and you sort of a graying out effect in terms of color vision? Yes, actually, that's probably one of the most common causes of acquired color issues. So what a cataract is, is uh, there, we all have a natural lens inside the eye, which is transparent. But as we get older, it does begin to opacify a little bit. It, the proteins um, kind of uh, develop in the lens that cause it to become yellow or sometimes even uh, orange or brown in, in color. And that degrades the amount of light getting through to the retina in the back of the eye. So it affects color vision as well. And what people don't realize is that cataracts usually develop very slowly, so they may not recognize that they're losing color vision or having an issue with color vision. Things look a little bit muted, uh, a little um, kind of subdued, mm-hmm. but once someone has cataract surgery, it's like a whole new yeah. technicolor world. It's like getting a new HD uh, TV, you know, uh, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a pretty striking comparison, but again, mm-hmm. many people don't realize how much their cataract may affect their color vision because it's a slow process. It happens over years to decades. And um, it's very subtle. But yes, absolutely, it can affect color vision. So so the, the big elephant in the room these days is COVID-19. And there's a lot of controversy about masks. And then there's this uh, variation on the theme, uh, wear a mask and wear an eye shield. So have you been following uh, some of the studies uh, looking at the evidence for transmission via the eyes you know i always thought that people were sort of missing the boat you know they they dutifully wear masks but uh you know we know that uh, the eyes uh, are mucous membranes and they can be uh, a way that viruses can uh, enter the system uh, there's easy communication between the eyes and the uh, nasal passages um what's the deal yeah, Dr. Hoffman, I'm so glad you brought this up because there is a lot of um, controversy out there, and and rightfully so because as as things are evolving, we are learning more and more about this virus. So things that we thought were true a few months ago, now we know are not yeah. as 
um, you know, concerning, for example. So, um, so initially there was a lot of, you know, concern because yes, the eyes have mucous membranes. And for example, if you touch something that's contaminated with the virus and then touch your eyes, you may potentially introduce the virus that way. Or for example, if someone coughs or sneezes and the virus is in the air, it's suspended in the air, it can potentially enter the eyes that way. But the truth is, I think, um, you know, there have been a couple of small studies published on this, but the largest study showed that transmission via the eyes is, is actually low. It's quite, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's mm-hmm. on the low side, less than 5%. Okay. And, um, and uh, in terms of your question about wearing eye protection, so uh, most people, you know, if they're out and about, uh, yes, they should be wearing their mask, absolutely. But in terms of eye, you know, goggles or sunglasses, glasses, um, it's quite rare that it would be transmitted that way. So I would say in the, you know, for the general population, it is not necessary. Mm-hmm. But if you have, if you are exposed to a high viral load, for example, yeah. if you are a healthcare worker or, you know, if you're in a household with other family members who, mm-hmm. who have COVID, then yes. Uh, you may be exposed to higher virus levels mm-hmm. and it may be best to wear goggles. And so what I do is typically when I'm out on the streets, you know, I don't wear eye protection. I mm-hmm. do wear sunglasses to protect against UV damage, but not specifically for COVID. Right. But when I'm in the hospital and I'm working with patients in the clinic and we don't know, we assume we have to assume that everyone may potentially have the virus. Mm-hmm. We do wear eye protection, especially for procedures. If we're mm-hmm. doing any, even something like Botox we were talking about before, we absolutely wear eye protection for that. Mm-hmm. Now, so would it be, you know, it's, it's, I'm sorry, would, would it be, uh, it, are people in a fool's paradise using those face shields? I sometimes see people walking down the street here in Manhattan rocking a face shield, sometimes with a mask, sometimes without a mask. And uh, it's kind of a cool fashion statement. It looks kind of space age. Uh, but is is that really conferring protection? Because, you know, obviously the face shield, you know, it's, it doesn't completely enclose the face there's a space underneath it where particles can travel upwards or when you're in the office treating patients do you use some type of goggles or, or what yes so um so i have seen that as well dr hoffman being in new york i've definitely seen patients who are people on the street wearing those face shields you know i i don't know if there's been a study comparing face shields versus masks versus plus plus or minus goggles right. so no, we don't isn't. know yeah. yet Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, I'm sure that will hope, you know hopefully be investigated and published in the future. But um, you know, just again in general, if you if you are in a high virus load situation, I would recommend wearing goggles that are very form fitting, mm-hmm. so they really do not have any gaps. You do not want any you know particular suspended virus particles to get through into your eyes. Mm-hmm. So tight fitting goggles. Um, you know, you some I know some doctors in the height of the pandemic in New York, they were even wearing ski masks. Mm-hmm. They create a very tight shield, mm-hmm. and they're very wide, so they don't fog up as much. Because that's the other issue: is mm-hmm. when we do wear some of this protection, yeah. it can fog up and it can affect our vision. So yeah. uh, that's something else to consider. And even for my patients, you know, when I'm when I see them in the office, of course, I wear my PPE, but I do incur I do require that they wear masks. In terms mm-hmm. of goggles, that is up to them. But of course, I have to have them remove their goggles during the exam. But even just simply wearing a mask in you know as they're being examined, oftentimes. Everything gets fogged up. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to examine their eyes, but my lenses get fogged up. My equipment gets yeah. fogged up. So it's a little bit tricky. It's a nuisance. Yeah. yeah. It is a, it's kind a, of a new position. It's an interesting yeah. dilemma we have now that we never had before. So all repercussions of COVID. Yeah. It, it, speaking of repercussions of uh, COVID, 
uh, I think a lot of people are, are spending more time on screens. You know, my uh, iPhone gives me a weekly report. You know, your screen time is up, your screen time is down. Uh, it was up alarmingly during uh, COVID-19 because uh, I was spending a lot of time uh, sitting around looking at my emails, looking at uh, social media, uh, even using my tablet to read. Uh, is uh, uh, eye strain uh, one of the uh, inadvertent consequences of COVID-19? Yes. And actually, I, th- I would say I'm more concerned about increase in digital screen time than COVID spread through the eyes. I mean, I think this is probably something that you know, has really come to light, no pun intended, during yeah. the pandemic and will continue to be, um, a, you know, concern going forward because so many of us are working from home, even now, even as things open up, many people are still working from home, homeschooling, uh, connecting with family and friends via devices and watching more TV or streaming. So our screen time has gone up exponentially. And it's very interesting, before the pandemic, the average amount of screen time uh, estimated in the U.S. was 11 hours a day for, for adults. Wow. And that's mind-boggling. Yes. Mind-boggling. And even yeah. for children, I think it was estimated that most kids spend at least six hours a day in front of some kind of a screen or device. Wow. So, you know, I'm a little afraid to see what the numbers are going to look like, you know, during and after the pandemic, but it's going to be a lot more. And I know, as, as you mentioned, you've had an increase in screen time. I have. My, my daughter has. So this is really a universal issue. And, you know, what happens is when we're on a screen, fortunately, there is no long-term damage to our eyes from being, at least not that we know of, from being on a screen, but there are short-term issues. Mm-hmm. So there is this condition called digital eye strain, which I mentioned before. And it's a, it's a constellation of symptoms. It's blurry vision, trouble focusing, dry eye, Mm -hmm. light sensitivity, sometimes even headaches, shoulder and neck pain. So we all need to kind of be cognizant of our screen time and do whatever we can to protect against digital eye strain and blue light, which is the light that comes from our screens. And there's a couple of great ways to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, to protect our eyes against blue light. Um, You know, many people ask me, oh, Dr. Bannock, should I be getting blue light blocking glasses or Mm -hmm. should I use the screen filter? But what I tell them is... by the way, which interestingly enough, by the way, those glasses aren't blue. They're they're amber color. They're (laughs) yellow, you know, counterintuitively, right? Yes. Some are are yellow, orange, or even red. And Mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're blocking out the short wavelength blue light uh, energy, energy wavelength. Um, but, uh, But what I tell patients is, you know, our eyes actually have an innate blue blocking ability, and many people don't realize this, is that we have pigments in the back of our eyes. Uh, they have names. There are types of carotenoid pigments. They're called lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin. And these pigments are put there to absorb harmful blue light and also UV light. So we have innate blue blockers inside our eyes. And the best way to get this, these pigments is, Unfortunately, our bodies can't make the pigments. I wish we could, but we can't generate the pigments ourselves. We have to get it through um, either our diet or through supplementation. And in terms of diet, there are some great um, uh, natural, you know, fr- fruits and vegetables that that, that contain lutein and zeaxanthin. Uh, for example, green leafy vegetables, orange peppers, uh, corn is a great source, even egg yolk is a great source of lutein and zeaxanthin. But the third pigment I mentioned, which is the mesozeaxanthin, it's a cousin of, of lutein and zeaxanthin, it's a chemical cousin, um, it is not available readily in food. So that one is, we actually think is the most potent of all the uh, blue blocking pigments. So we have to, you know, as, again, I would stress nutrition plus supplementation. And um, 
I've done a lot of research in the many eye health supplements out there. You know, there's a whole slew of them, probably over 50 eye health supplements on the market. Each is different in its formulation, but the one I found, or there's an ingredient I found, which is, uh, it automatically provides a lutein zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin, which our eyes need, and that is called Lutamax 2020. So that's the ingredient. Lute, it is found lute, in many. Lutimax? L-U-T-I? L-U-T-E-M-A-X. So it's like lutein to the max. Okay. And 2020, think of vision, you know, perfect yeah. vision is 2020 vision. So Lutamax 2020. And the great thing is this is an ingredient and it's found in many of the supplements on the market. So you just have to look for the label, turn the bottle around, look at the label, look to make sure it says Lutamax 2020 because it will have all three of the pigments mm-hmm. that we need and in the same ratio that's naturally available in our diet. And it's the only one that's been clinically proven to help reduce digital eye strain, blue light, um, you know, protect against blue light, and also help with our sleep. And we can talk about that too. But uh, but it's it's a great um, way to, you know, kind of, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about what foods you're eating. You can automatically get the nutrition that your eyes need. So, so it's an ingredient found in certain eye supplements. Uh, any particular brands that uh, you could mention or you just want to be ecumenical? Sure, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there, there are many out there. Um, the ones that, uh, you know, that, that I found best are Life, uh, Life Extension, Doctor's Best, um, uh, Nature's Way. I mean, these are, you know, common supplements found on the, on the market. Um, uh, that contain Budamax 2020. So again, just look at the label. And the great thing is that there are even some eye health supplements. You know, we think we're talking about kids before and how much time they're spending on devices. Our kids in particular may be more susceptible to blue light just because their eyes may not be able to filter out some of those harmful blue rays. So it's hard to get kids to eat some of those fruits and vegetables yeah. I mentioned, but there are gummy forms of the supplements, which are wonderful for kids mm-hmm. as well as adults. So, uh, so me and myself and my family, we have the gummy form and they taste good. You know, they're they're easy to take. So lots of mm-hmm. uh, lots of options with Ludamax twenty twenty. And of course, at the other end of the aging spectrum, uh, these uh, ingredients are critical for prevention of macular degeneration. You know, which is you know something that uh, is, uh, I guess, possibly the leading cause of blindness in uh, seniors. Right. It is, yeah, in the U.S. and in the world. It is one of the four leading causes of blindness. And nutrition, I mean, there are multiple studies that show that diets low in these pigments, lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin, uh, increase the risk for macular degeneration. Diet, diets that are rich in these pigments decrease the risk, and so supplementation is also very, very important. You know, just an interesting um, uh, fact about, you know, our diet. So most people um, just don't get enough lutein in their diet. So the recommended amount is anywhere from 6 to 20 milligrams of lutein a day. And most people, most adults get about 1 or 2 milligrams oh at goodness. the most. Even the, even people on the best, you know, most healthy Mediterranean diets probably are only getting 1 to 2 milligrams. And for zeaxanthin, you know, the second pigment I mentioned, uh, it's estimated we get at least 1 milligram, 1 to 2 milligrams a day. Most people get less than 1 milligram. So this is, again, where supplementation is wonderful. Um for eye health, for, you know, our current lifestyle, being on devices, and for prevention of macular degeneration. Okay, great stuff. Uh, okay, I want to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. Uh, when you return, uh, more on the subject of eye health with integrative ophthalmologist, Dr. Rudrani Manik. That's B-A-N-I-K. And oh, by the way, uh, for listening audience, you have a website, uh, and can people learn more about you? Absolutely. So my website is my full name, which is rudranibanikmd.com. 
Okay, that's let's spell it out. R U D R A N I Bannock B A N I K uh, dot com. Thank you. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.